0: Hello, I am Manuel Avila, and this is Spirituality and Science. So far, we have taken the first steps towards understanding the true nature of reality by using a couple of very simple but illustrative examples. We live in a world in which we not only perceive reality through our senses, but where we also create reality through our actions. This reality is simply what we know as culture. Wikipedia's definition of culture is the social behavior and norms found in human societies as well as the knowledge, beliefs, arts, laws, customs, capabilities, and habits of those groups of individuals. This simply means that culture is that collective mental construction that gives context and meaning to the physical reality that we experience. If the brain of a human being is like a computer, then the mind would be the operating system, and the culture would be like the office suite in which we work, the office of life. Following this analogy, we can add that human relationships become like networks that these computers form. Look how interesting. Through technology, we have built a replica of our cognitive system to use as an extension of our own capabilities. And even today, our scientists and engineers are working to endow that technology with the ability to think, the famous artificial intelligence. Is it then a coincidence that the biblical text speaks of a creator who created man in his image and likeness? In that same story the serpent tells adam that if he tastes the tree of knowledge he can become like god well it is possible that here some believing listeners are already getting off the bus because apparently i've just hinted that humanity is following the instructions from the devil and pretending to become gods well yes i think there is no doubt that human beings have chosen for a long time happily so to eat more of the tree of knowledge than from the tree of blind faith. However, as you will hear when I discuss the true origins of the Bible later on in another episode, it is quite possible that the famous serpent of the Bible was originally an ally of humans trying to free us from the bondage of the gods, or so the story said, to get us out of the cave, if you will. But let's go back to my analogy of human culture with computing. It may have sounded a bit strange that the mind is the operating system. So let me explain this. The mind is not something physical, but a phenomenon that emerges from consciousness and encompasses the cognitive characteristics of thought, including imagination, perception, thought, judgment, language, and memory. It also covers non-cognitive aspects such as emotions like fear and love. You may have noticed that I really like referencing cinema. So at this point, it is worth bringing up the 2015 Pixar animated film Inside Out. In that film, the mind of Riley, an 11-year-old girl, is represented as five characters that inhabit her head. Joy, sadness, disgust, and anger. We have already mentioned that these characters are part of the non-cognitive part of the mind, but the story had to be simplified as not to get entangled. The fact is that Riley, in the end, seems to be actually a puppet managed by those five characters in her mind. In fact, in the movie, the emotions have a joystick that uh, can use to manage the girl's actions. One of the things that I love about Pixar is that their films, uh, they have dared to propose deep and controversial themes that children's films usually shy away from. In this case, in addition to showing how sadness is an emotion that is as valuable as the others and necessary for an emotional balance, Inside Out touched on a subject that until now was a taboo in popular culture especially, the myth of the inner self. Within Riley, there is no inner being that is the real Riley. At first, it would seem that joy was the most important emotion, but then it becomes clear that each one adds an important part of who Riley is. Other characters appear in the girl's mind, such as dreams, fears, and even an imaginary friend. But Riley's soul, or an inner being, is nowhere to be found. So, there is no soul? Well... Maybe some of you will not like this statement, but don't worry about that. I will propose later on a solution to this conflict. For now, let's go back to the movie. Obviously, this is an artistic representation of the mind, but what most people do not know is that behind it, there is real science. In a New York Times article, Dacher Keltner and Paul Ekman, both University of California psychology professors tell how the film's director saw them out for their scientific help in portraying a girl's mind in an animated film. These professors are also scientific researchers who have specialized for several decades in the study of the mind. They were fully involved in the project and from their collaboration came the scientific support for the story of Inside Out. The movie is largely based on modern theories of the workings of the mind which correspond more accurately to clinical observations. Since Aristotle until Freud, emotions were regarded as something like reflexes hardwired in the brain. However, modern research has shown that emotions are an individual experience that is formed from the beginning of the brain development and that can be trained, adapted, and transformed. So in the movie, Joy learns to let sadness its thing to allow Riley express her frustrations and reconnect with her parents. Current neuroscience tells us that our mind is not split between an instinctive part, a conscious self, and a super ego that represents moral values as it was believed before. No, what we interpret as I, the center of our consciousness, is actually the sum of the consciousness of many different parts of our brain. This theory is supported by many neurological experiments and observations around the world. But an interesting piece of evidence comes from a somewhat creepy study that began in the 1960s on a dozen epilepsy patients who underwent radical surgery. It turns out that epilepsy is like a storm that happens in the brain when, for some reason, the electrical activity of neurons is synchronized and an overload occurs that causes the patient to lose consciousness and fall to the floor convulsing usually. Thanks to computer tomography, it has been found that these brain electrical storms spread from one hemisphere of the brain to the other, and that is when the patient loses consciousness. It was then that the neurosurgeon Roger Wolcott Sperry developed a technique to divide the connection between the two sides of the neocortex in an area called the corpus callosum. It was then believed that each hemisphere of the brain controlled different systems and processes of the body and the mind, but there was not much information about the relationship between those two halves. So some patients who suffered from the most violent seizures and who met certain conditions, were chosen to undergo surgical therapy. The immediate result was a resounding success as all the patients who were operated on stopped suffering from those terrible seizures. The best thing was that all their mental and physical functions and abilities seemed to have remained intact. Either way, Dr. Spurry and his colleagues closely followed these patients and began to systematically document their observations. These observations clarified many doubts that were there about the functioning of the brain. One of the things that they discovered was that one of the most common understandings of the brain is not true, that each hemisphere controls different things, speech for example in the left hemisphere and visual special processing in the right, or that the left hemisphere is logical-mathematical, and the right hemisphere is creative-artistic. Well, the split-brain experiments show that both hemispheres are almost equally competent for most things. This would partially debunk the analogy that I made of the human brain being similar to a computer, because the computer has parts dedicated exclusively to certain tasks. The hard disk Stores information, the processor computes the video card projects, images, etc. The split brain studies showed that the brain is more like a network of interconnected computers that share information and workload among them. If a connection is cut, even if it is the most important, the remaining networks continue to operate at full speed. Now, the unsettling part of the study came when participants were presented with an image covering half of their visual field and then presented with the same image covering the other half. When they saw the image for the second time, they did not recognize it as the same image as they have seen in the first part of the experiment. It was as though they were seeing it for the first time. Participants could not give a description of the image that was presented to them on the left side of the visual field or they did not perceive the image it seems to them like flash they could however identify the objects in a nonverbal manner by pointing out with their left hand at a similar image or selecting an object that was in the image from a group of other objects these curiously only worked with right-handed participants if they were presented with two symbols simultaneously one on each side of the visual field, for example, dollar sign on the left and a question mark on the right, and the participant was asked to draw with their left hand what they had seen without him being able to see what his hand was doing, the patient drew the symbol of the left visual field, that is the dollar sign. If asked to say aloud what they had just drawn, the participant would say by name the symbol of the corresponding visual field, Of the other side, this is the question mark. So it's like there's a disconnection evidently in the consciousness of the person responding each of those questions. There were other experiments like blindly handing them a different object in each hand and then asking them to search for the two items also blindly in a drawer full of many objects. Each hand independently searched for the object it had touched. And even if one of the hands touched the object that the other hand was looking for, it would just release that object and keep searching, like not recognizing that was the the element that was in the other hand. The results of these studies which also earned Dr. Rogers Perry the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1981, seem to confirm the theory that consciousness is not a cohesive unit that inhabits either physically in the brain or spiritually in the soul, but it is the sum of sub-levels of consciousness that in any case are manifested in different parts of the brain. Perhaps the ancient sages in India were closer, they identified four parts of the mind. vinna Ana, consciousness, which is foreign from the separate consciousness of the six senses that they say we have. Sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts. The second part of the mind, for the connoisseurs of the Buddhist path of the Dhamma, was known as sana ara which means perception which is the responsible for recognizing the meaning of what has arisen in the senses or in the mind and transferring it to the third part of the mind, which was called Veda Ara, and means sensation. So this part would be the one that is responsible for providing a pleasant or unpleasant sensation according to the meaning defined by Sana Ara. The last part of the mind, according to this tradition is sankhara, that is also responsible for the reaction of the mind, the internal action that leads us to seek more pleasant sensations and reject the unpleasant ones. Sankhara in Buddhism is the origin of all suffering, attachment to whatever we want or rejection of what we don't want, because it becomes the seed of the actions that drive us to stay on the what they call the wheel of karma. But I'm not going to delve into this teaching yet because for now we will continue analyzing reality from the point of view of science to see how we face it from a spiritual point of view later on. I refer to the Dhamma because I wanted to show that there is ancient wisdom that is actually closer to the current scientific knowledge than our previous secular understanding. This is not a coincidence or divine revelation even. This is the result of centuries of observation, analysis, and experimentation. I promised that I would give a way to reconcile these factual observations of consciousness divided into many parts in our mind with a spiritual principle of the being. For this, I am going to rely on a concept of the American theoretical physicist Sean Carroll called the Emergent Property. What Carl tells us is that systems have characteristics that they do not have in the parts that make them up. For example, biology is a phenomenon that emerges from chemistry, and chemistry itself is a phenomenon that emerges from physics. Life as such does not exist in the proteins and amino acids that our cells are made of, but cells do experience life. Now, cells do not have consciousness, but when they form a living human organism, then consciousness emerges. And when consciousness emerges, then society, love, money, and many other things arise. These may not exist on the level of physical reality, but they do exist in the operating system of the mind. So knowing that human consciousness is not one, but many does not take away the right to think of ourselves as individual beings, but it does obliges to contemplate consciousness as a phenomenon of many levels, perhaps even levels higher than that of the individual. Can it be said, for example, that there is a collective, social, planetary, or maybe even universal consciousness? Well, I leave it here for you to think about the possibilities. For now, have a good journey and a nice breeze.